Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast Edition. I'm Tom Bennett, uh, stepping into the hot seat today for Colette Allen, who uh, is taking a well-deserved break. Uh, but worry not, listener, you will not be shortchanged in terms of numbers, um, because I am joined today uh, by both Paul Ragg of the University of Leeds. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. And by Peter Cove, the University of Reading. Hi, Pete. Hi, Tom. Uh, so between us, we will uh, bring you, as ever, the latest headlines in media law-related news. Give it a good raking over. And we start uh, just briefly to mention uh, something that came up on our last newscast uh, when Pete and I were talking about the then uh, possibility that uh, the broadcaster RT, formerly known as Russia Today, would have its Ofcom license uh, revoked. That has subsequently happened. 18th of March, Ofcom announced the revocation of RT's broadcast license. Uh, RT had already been taken off air on major platforms uh, in the UK, um, but it has now had its license to broadcast revoked entirely. Um, Ofcom said that the investigation has taken into account a number of factors, including RT's relationship with the Russian Federation. It recognizes that RT is funded by the Russian state, which has recently invaded a neighboring sovereign country, and uh, notes new laws in Russia which effectively criminalize any independent journalism that departs from the Russian state's own news narrative. Uh, Ofcom concluded that the constraints placed by the Russian state on Russian broadcasters would make it impossible for RT to comply with British impartiality rules, uh, and this was core part of the justification. Um, so, Pete, you were um, on the podcast with me last time when we talked about this. Any reaction to the uh, revocation decision? Yeah, I mean, I think the we, we raised this point last time, Tom, and, and I know we, we, we touched upon it. Um, Ofcom's license revocation uh, doesn't prevent RT from publishing online content in the UK. And the concern then that we raised, and it's still the concern now, is that actually uh, most of RT's uh, audience is online, in, in, in the UK at least. They actually have very low... Uh, viewing figures um, through its through its uh, its channel, um, it, so its online publication has much larger viewing figures than a much larger audience than its than its television channel. Um, but of course, Ofcom doesn't regulate online content; uh, it only regulates broadcast outlets. So it can't stop RT publishing uh, content through its online its online um, platforms. Um, the concern is that by Ofcom revoking uh, RT's broadcasting license, Russia may respond in a tit-for-tat way by preventing BBC, the BBC Russian service from broadcasting in Russia. And actually, BBC's Russian service has much higher viewing figures you know, as compared to RT's equivalent service on its television channels in the UK. So, there, you know, there is a concern that by doing this, we're actually going to be preventing far more people getting really important information in Russia through the BBC than really any impact RT was having uh, through its TV channel in this, in this country. And that actually RT can continue to, to 
to really essentially publish what it wants, but just through a different medium than, than, than its television channels. Uh, but that was really all I was going to say. And, and that, as I said, that's, that was the concern when we last spoke, and it remains the concern now. So, uh, conclusion on that, really, not a lot has changed from the situation we yeah. predicted. Um, moving on, uh, the government has now published a draft of its online harms bill, and boy, is it massive. Um, we've been awaiting the draft for a number of months now, and it, it has landed with a tremendous thud, um, 225 pages of draft legislation, um, which at first glance feels, I'm trying to think of the right word, excessive, possibly doesn't cover it, but we'll we'll, we'll go with that. Um, It's certainly big. Um, What I want to focus on in it um, are three new speech-related offences that the bill proposes to create. These can be found in sections 150, 151, and 152 of the draft, which if you're pouring through your 200-page document starts at page 136 in the PDF that the government's kindly made available. Um, These three offences, now that we can actually see the wording of them, um, have some... Mm, strangely idiosyncratic wording. So uh, I think I'll just start by outlining the three offences. That'll take me a couple of minutes, but um, I think it's worth doing that and flagging up some of the key features, um, and then we can uh, get into a discussion of them. So uh, section 150 in the draft uh, would create a a so-called harmful communications offence, Um, whereby a person would commit an offence by sending a message uh, if there was a real and substantial risk that the message would cause harm to a likely audience and the person sending the message intended to cause harm to that likely audience uh, without reasonable excuse. Um, The likely audience is uh, in in, in this and subsequent um, offences an individual um, uh, who, at the time the message is sent, it is reasonably foreseeable uh, that they would encounter the message or, in the online context, would encounter a subsequent message forwarding or sharing the content of the original message. Um, so this is um, part of the government's attempt to cover so-called online pylons, where people... Uh, there's a pile-ons, not electricity pylons. Um, <laughs> pile-ons, where, where, where people retweet the message many times and add their own insult. Um, interestingly, here, the harmful uh, communication defense defines harm in subsection 4 as meaning psychological harm amounting to at least serious distress. Uh, which for the tort lawyers in the room will cause some confusion immediately because in tort law... Um, we've never regarded distress as amounting to psychological harm. We have psychological illnesses and we have distress. Those are two different categories. Uh, in this offence, they appear to be um, one and the same. Um, there are exceptions. Uh, certain types of uh, party cannot 
um, commit offences under the sanction, including a recognised news publisher or, or those who hold licences to broadcast. Um, maximum sentence, uh, two years imprisonment. Uh, next, well, next up, we have the false communications offence, section 151. Um, where a person commits an offence if they again if they send a message, and this time the message conveys information that the person sending it knows to be false, uh, and at the time of sending it, the person intended the message or the information in it to cause non-trivial psychological or physical harm to a likely audience without reasonable excuse. Um, so here we have different wording for psychological harm uh, instead of. Uh, psychological harm amounting to at least dis serious distress we have non-trivial psychological harm i can't tell whether that's the same thing a different thing a different standard at first glance it seems to me to be a lower standard still than the previous offense but um who knows at this point um again we have uh the uh audience uh being uh, those who either encounter the message or uh, who it is reasonably foreseeable would encounter the message or, or encounter a subsequent message forwarding or sharing sharing the content, and again, um, news uh, publishers uh, cannot be uh, defendants under this section, and neither can those with broadcasting licences. Finally, we have section one hundred and fifty-two, which is the threatening communications offence. So this time, uh, the uh, message that is sent conveys a threat of death or serious harm. Um, and what's interesting here is that serious harm is defined uh, by subsection 2 uh, as um, serious injury amounting to grievous bodily harm, rape or assault by penetration, or, and this is where I think it gets controversial, serious financial loss. Um, so quite apart from the uh, perhaps distastefulness of the uh, proposed legislation equating rape with serious financial loss. Um, th this does raise very serious questions about exactly what is going to be meant by serious financial loss, how that will be defined. It does not appear to be defined. It's not defined in the section, nor is it defined in the subsequent section 153, which is uh, the uh, interpretation section, supposed to provide us with these sorts of definitions. Maximum sentence for this five years imprisonment. Uh, for the uh, false information one, it was a summary only offence, so a uh, maximum of whatever that is now. It used to be six months, 51 weeks, I believe now. Yes, 51 weeks, the maximum sentence. Um, so, whew, that was a lot. Gentlemen, what do we think of this? Paul, we haven't heard from you for a long time now. No, we haven't. Welcome back. Um, what do you think of you. this? Um, so, uh, the, the the draft bill, um, in a word, what word would I use to describe it? Uh, you mentioned it was voluminous, Tom. Uh, I'd use the word dense. Um, probably use the word verbose. Um, but ultimately, I'm not entirely sure what it's trying to do. It's interesting that it's uh, repealing... Uh, later on, we see that it's repealing Section 127 of the Communications Act, the much maligned 127. Uh, it's also repealing the uh, Malicious Communication Act of uh, 1988. Is that meant to tell us that these offences are sort of the replica 
uh, of those, the, the new enhanced standard, because of course one of the criticisms of both 100 and such, 127 and Section 1 of the Malicious Communications Act was that these were published uh, and came into law prior to the digital age, or as I like to call it, the Dark Age Part 2. Um, or, or are they trying to do something new? Um, I think what's most concerning about uh, these provisions is that they're so horribly wide, they're so horribly ambiguous that there's every chance they can be used uh, for political reasons uh, to outlaw certain types of speech. Um, they can be used indiscriminately against individuals to outlaw uh, certain cultures, certain sections of society that right thinking there to come as people don't like. Um, it's troubling that the press get a free pass on this. Um, I mean, if, if, if false communication is an offence, if false communication is sufficiently dangerous to society that we think it should be criminalised, why is it allowable for a newspaper to do it? It's either a wrong or it isn't. Which is it? Why are we saying that certain types of people should be allowed to engage in these behaviours, threatening behaviours, uh, behaviours causing harm, simply because we think because they label themselves journalists. That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. The false communications offence one is 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 an odd one to me because you, one might think on its face that it's attempting to criminalise fake news, misinformation, disinformation. Um, but given the exemption for the from news media, um, I don't think it is at all. Um, this seems to me to be essentially a criminal version of the old uh, Wilkinson and Downton tort, um, yeah. the tort of uh, well, the Supreme Court most recently called it the uh, willful infringement of personal safety. It's had an awful lot of different names over the years and people have tried to work out what it's about. But it's the case from the uh, the talk from the old case of Wilkinson and Downton, uh, which for anyone who's not a tort lawyer in the room, um, one might recall this as the uh, late 19th century case in which uh, a man um, playing a practical joke on a woman told the woman that her husband had been very seriously injured in an accident and she should come immediately. And she suffered uh, what was described in court as nervous shock as a result of this and uh, sued the man. Wasn't quite sure which uh, tort he should be sued in. Um, so in just in a general pleading on the case, in essence, this was pleaded just as a, some sort of trespass. Um, and the court recognized a, a, a tort had taken place. Uh, and subsequently, tort scholars have, have uh, found a place for this cause of action in all the tort textbooks squirreled away at the back of a chapter somewhere because it doesn't really fit into the rest of tort law very easily. Um, it fell out of use for a long time, but it has had a recent renaissance, so I guess it's it's kind of on people's minds, but I, I don't think it was on the government's mind. Um, and yet that to me seems to be the sort of scenario that this would cover, right? A situation where a person says something untrue that causes another person to react badly psychologically in to whatever level of harm the section envisages uh, as triggering liability. Um, and, and this is 
why would why should this be criminalized? I mean, that's that's my question. Thirty tort covers it already. It makes where no is the need for this? But, oh, sorry, Paul. No, I was just sorry. I was talking over you, but um, I was just going to say, Tom, you've you've referred to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court last thought about this in the context of O and Rhodes, which was a case in which a father wanted to publish his own biography that detailed uh, extensive sexual abuse that he had suffered as a child in circumstances where the um, his estranged partner, who was also the mother of his child, living in a completely different jurisdiction, objected because she felt um, that encountering this information would have a profound psychological effect upon their son. Now, I'm sat here thinking about this, uh, this new offence, thinking, hang on a minute, would a third party sending extracts of that book to the son trigger the um, offence of being a harmful communication? Yes, not thinking, a false communication, but a harmful one. Under well, this is a, harm, a harmful communication yeah. under 150. Hmm. So, or even putting it online somewhere where it is foreseeable that the child might encounter a subsequent message forwarding or sharing the content. Well, bearing in mind that the offence is described in subsection 1 as a person commits this offence if they send a message and at the time of sending the message, there was a real and substantial risk it would cause harm to the likely audience, i.e. the son, and the person intended to cause harm to that likely audience. And let's say they did. Let's say they were being vindictive. And then the third part of the offence is they have no reasonable excuse for sending the message, which presumably they don't. They just want to be vindictive. It looks like they've just breached that, um, that standard. It'll be two years in prison in that case. That's two years in prison for sending an extract from Rhodes's book to his own son. Really? Um, real and substantial. Can I just point these words up for a moment? Um, because I, I, I dislike it when um, rules have extra unnecessary words. And this is particularly, it annoys me in football now that VAR is triggered only uh, where there is a clear and obvious error, because I can't for the life of me work out what kind of error would be clear but not obvious, or <laughs> obvious but not clear. Um, but presumably the rules envisage the situation where it could be one of those, which is why it has to be both. Um, real and substantial, why, why both? Of the, I mean, in what circumstance would a substantial risk not be real? Isn't this a problem, though, Tom? If you, you know, looking at the three different offences that you, you you took us through, there are, you know, we were having this conversation prior prior to the podcast that actually there's a lot of ambiguity in the language that's been been used throughout. So, you know, in, in real and substantial is an example of that. You know, what does what does that mean? it hasn't then given us the kind of contextual, there is no contextual guidance as to what that means. There's no contextual guidance on, you know, what's the difference between psychological harm and non-trivial psychological harm. Hmm. They use two different terms in the, you know, in, in, in what, they use one term in one provision and in the next section, the next offence, they use a different term. What's the difference? And I think this is, this is a, this is a concern um, because it makes it unclear. You think if we're having we're having this conversation now as media lawyers, and we're uncertain, what will the public think? 
I also just want because I I also just want to play around with this idea of there being a reasonable excuse for sending the message. So I'm trying to figure out what what might amount to a reasonable excuse. I mean, if they mean sending a message for a lawful purpose, they should just say that. But let's go back to that situation in which a Rhodes type scenario arises and you're sending an extract from the book to deliberately harm the child. Would it be a reasonable excuse if that child had done something to you that caused you harm? Let's say you were in a relationship with them and they broke your heart. You wanted to get back at them, so you sent them this message knowing that it would upset them. Is that presumably not? Presumably not. We tend not to regard malicious conduct as um, as as reasonable. So Um, what? What's a well? It is. It is. Well, what does reasonable mean? Reason means it's subject to rationality. There is a rational reason for doing it. You had to tell somebody a piece of distressing news that was true and was necessary that they knew. I mean, you could have a situation where your doctor calls you up and says, you've had your test results back, you've got some horrendous disease. Um, and a person reacts badly to it, suffers psychological, uh, was, what was it? Psychological harm amounting to at least serious distress. Um, presumably, the, the, there's a reasonable excuse for the doctor in telling people their medical results. But that's not, that, I wouldn't say that's an excuse. I mean, because the, the excuse is the explanation of uh, sort of almost like a like a byproduct of of what you do you you are calling in order to do something you're calling in order to share uh, bad news um i i tend to think of an excuse as as something that it, that is explanatory but isn't apparent in the thing you were doing itself because it calls for a secondary explanation yep so if i hurl an insult at someone a third party won't understand why I've done that unless they have some additional information to explain the insult, at which point it may become reasonable or it may not be reasonable. That's a fair point. Yeah. But it, otherwise, it's just, it's a purpose, isn't it? It's a lawful mm-hmm. purpose. If I'm a doctor, my purpose is calling you to give you bad news. I'm surprised there isn't a lawful purpose clause in this. Well, I don't want to make these people's life easier because I think this is a ridiculous piece of legislation. So I hope I just don't <laughs> inadvertently help this get through. But the whole thing should be thrown in. And there's there's also the point, of course, of in going back to the point you made initially, Paul. I was going what I was going to say about the um, uh, the false communications offence, which I, which which does really worry me, is the fact as as you you and Tom have both quite rightly said, the fact that it can't be committed by a recognised news publisher or a, or a licence hold under the Broadcasting Acts of 1999-96. I mean, the, the first issue is the recognised publisher definition under Section 50 still doesn't really, I think, make an awful lot of sense. It, 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 it could capture so many different people. That's That, that I think, is one, one particular issue. I think it needs to be refined. But also, as we've seen, you know, we've seen as we continue to see with, with press malfeasance, very often the press are publishing false information. They're very often doing it, they do do it at times, I think, on purpose. They do it to make money. They do it because they want to sell a story. You know, they're doing it for clickbait. We know this, we know they're doing it, yet they're exempt from this particular offence. They're not covered by it. And I think that's really worrying. And I think what this piece of legislation is doing is it's another way that the government is protecting 
the institutional press, um, which does really concern me. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's also... Um... Well, I'm just quickly checking back to see who who else is exempt from this, um, but I I don't see any exemption here for politicians. No, you're, no, there isn't. Holders of broadcasting licenses, right? Movies at the cinema and recognised news publishers. So, does this mean that Nigel Farage uh, would have been um, uh, would have been in breach of this of this standard in claiming that Turkey was about to join the European Union? Would he have been uh, in breach of this standard? Or anyone, I'm not just singling out Nigel Well, Farage. that's an interesting point, Paul, because I mean, it brings me to the, the last thing I wanted to say about this, which is on the, the false communications offence. It is an element of the offence that the person making the statement must have, at the time of making it, known the information to be false. We are given absolutely no clarity on what the standard um, to be applied there is. Yeah. Um, do we have to show what was going on in the mind of the individual themselves? Extraordinarily difficult because they'll just say, well, I didn't know it was false at the time. Or I just made a catastrophic error. Yeah. Um, or, or, or are we going to apply some sort of objective standard that a reasonable person ought to have known this was false? Now, presumably we won't do that because we tend not to do that in criminal law. We yeah. tend to apply more subjective standards, um, and you know, those, those, those who've, anyone who's studied criminal law will understand why. And anyone who hasn't uh, will not deprive you of that blissful ignorance, because believe me, you'd be happier. Um, but we don't tend to apply objective standards when it comes to people's mental state, because there's a difference here between the intention part and the knowledge part. I mean, this is this is an yeah. offence that. Yeah has an element of knowledge within the offence itself. Yeah. That strikes me as... I can't think of another example. of so, Now that I'm thinking of it now, I can't think of another example in English law of an offence that one can commit yeah. where having a certain... having some, part, some sort of knowledge is a, 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 an element of the offence. So the, so the Leave campaign said that £350 million would be donated to the NHS. That was printed on the side of a bus. Yes. No bus in living history has ever lied to us in quite the way that that bus did. The very well, next they don't day, know it's not going to happen because they, they can't read the future. The very next day, after the successful leave uh, votes had been announced, the very next day on GM... Uh, Good Morning Britain, sorry, not GMTV, Good Morning Britain uh, or GBTV. Very next day on Good Morning Britain, Nigel Farage was interviewed and he backtracked on that. Yeah. He backtracked on that promise and said, well, of course, that was just. Well, presumably a government could do it. That suggests to me that that, that even at the time, he knew that wasn't. That wasn't going to come to fruition. He just wanted us to leave. Or did he just suspect that. Governments in the near future would be unlikely to increase NHS spending by that amount. I mean, it is not impossible that a future government faced with all manner of riches um, that, you know, we in the UK might eventually have, whatever. Um, From novelty jamming. I don't know. We discover how to put wind farms on asteroids or something. And we make vast amounts of, of, of money from uh, renewable energy or whatever. 
Um, and we decide we're going to put 350 million into the, the NHS. It, I, my, my, my point is you couldn't possibly know. And, and that's why I think this might all completely fall apart as an offence. Um, because surely most people can say to just about anything, well, I didn't know it was false because it could happen. It could happen one day. It might not happen in the near. It doesn't say anything offence about, you know, uh, making an inaccurate prediction about something that might happen soon. It just no, says, knows that it's false. No. It said that the bus said, I remember exactly what the bus told me. It said, we send £350 million to the EU each week. We could send that to the NHS instead. Let's fund our NHS instead. Yeah. Yes. I remember the bus as well. We all remember the bus. Where is it now? That's what I'd like to know. It'd be interesting to see what happens when when criminal lawyers get their teeth into these three offences. And, you know, to, to, to think about how they could work in practice and, that, you know, looking at this from a with my my criminal lawyer hat on, which was many, many years ago, you can see you know, it'd be quite concerning, I think, for a, for, a, for a criminal lawyer perhaps prosecuting or defending these offences at the minute, because it isn't clear how they're meant to work um, because of the because of the way they've been drafted and the ambiguity around the language. Mm. We must move on, gentlemen, but um, yeah, we will, uh, I guess we'll keep an eye on this piece of legislation as it goes through whatever stages are next. It, it is, uh, since the draft has now been published, I guess it will now be uh, subject of much commentary, both in and outside of Westminster, uh, and we'll keep an eye on that and we'll, of course, keep you all updated on it. Uh, next up, uh, we're sticking with the government and various legislative proposals to, to mention uh, here consultations. So the uh, government's consultation on replacing the Human Rights Act with a quote-unquote British Bill of Rights is still ongoing. Anyone who is listening and has, has been following that might be uh, thinking about responding to the consultation. The consultation is still open until 19th of April. Um, various measures uh, that are being proposed and various rationales for the proposition, things we've talked about before to do with the right to protest. Um, we've got a, a consultation which, on the one hand, says we need to strengthen free speech law, and on the other hand, says we have to curtail uh, the uh, ability of the public peaceably to assemble in places that cause disruption, um, which, you know, in the context of what's currently going on in uh, Russia, seems uh, somewhat distasteful. Um, but uh, didn't seem to be any sign of backtracking there from the government. Uh, the second one to mention is a newly announced consultation, uh, ostensibly to do with defamation law. Dominic Raab, the Justice Secretary, um, made a big song and dance about this the other day. Um, this is a consultation on uh, slaps. Uh, I'm not talking about the Oscars. Uh, we're talking here about strategic lawsuits against public participation. Uh, in a nutshell, the, uh, the slaps are thought of as lawsuits that are threatened or actually brought by wealthy individuals in order to shut down public debate on their various uh, misdeeds. Um, so this has just been raised by Dominic Raab in the context of uh, wealthy Russian oligarchs who apparently uh, are using slaps to shut down debate about their con conduct in the UK. 
Um, and this is the ideal time thus to launch a consultation, which seems beautifully well prepared, um, given uh, that it's you know, uh, being sold to us as a kind of immediate response to a very particular narrow problem um, that's arisen in the context of the war in Ukraine. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a much more substantial document than I would have expected the government to produce in such a short amount of time. Um, uh, this is ostensibly about defamation law. Uh, Dominic mm-hmm. Rapp has talked about uh, introducing the New York Times and Sullivan standard. He's calling it the actual malice rule, which is, of course, the, the, the name for it. But we know it as the New York Times and Sullivan standard from the United States, uh, whereby uh, claimants cannot bring defamation actions if they are public figures. Um, because they would have to show actual malice, that is, knowing falsity or reckless disregard for the truth. So in practice, they cannot be brought. Uh, unclear whether Raab envisages uh, applying only to public figures as it does in the US or applying generally to all defamation claims. We don't know. Point is, this is up for consultation. Um, you can look at the consultation document on the government's website as ever. This consultation will run until the 19th of May. Uh, so time to get your comments in. But let's have a few here, shall we? Um, Paul, slaps. Slaps, yes. I'm fascinated by this, and I'm fascinated by the author uh, of um, of this proposal, given that it's Dominic Raab. Um, this is the same Dominic Raab, we'll recall, who did in fact sue uh, Associated Newspapers um circa 2011 remember this reminders okay so this is dominic raab who sued the mail on sunday after they published uh, an article which alleged that he had bullied uh, a colleague uh, referred to in court as e while he worked as chief of staff to david davis between 2006 and 2008 their article was headlined Payout for Woman Who Claimed Workplace Bullying Under Raab and also claimed that the woman had been paid £20,000 in hush money to keep accusations of bullying and sexual discrimination a secret. So, what are we to make about those kind of claims? What are we to make about that kind of litigation? Uh, Is Dominic Raab saying then that when he sued in 2011, he was wrong to do so because that amounted to a slap? Or is he saying that he would be exempt from the proposal that he himself is now bringing? This is the problem, Paul. Um, What you've raised there, I think, you know, kind of uh, illustrates the problem in a nutshell, is that as Tom said when he started to talk about this, you know, talk about this particular issue, we know how to describe slaps. The government describes slaps and it's called for evidence. But what it doesn't do and what it makes clear there isn't at the moment is a commonly agreed upon definition of what a slap actually is. Um, there are there have been various different attempts made to define slaps. Um, there are there are groups throughout Europe, various different groups throughout Europe, NGOs, uh, the European Union, Council of Europe. All have been working on drafting uh, different recommendations and legislations legislation around slaps, and they've come up with different ways of, of defining it. 
We've also got definitions in, in the US, particularly in California and also in Canada, where SLAP legislation and jurisprudence is more developed than it is over here. But at the moment, we don't have a definition for it. It's very difficult to actually work out what a SLAP is and therefore mm. who potentially should be captured by any legislation that is brought into force to try to curtail the use of SLAP litigation to prevent to, to prevent or stymie free speech. Um, and actually, the government in its call for evidence recognises this, and it says this at the very beginning at page nine, that an important issue for the government in this call for evidence is the question of whether a statutory definition of slaps is required in order to address the issue properly. What it goes on to say is, is that we're clear that the absence of a legal definition will make it more difficult to identify, uh, sorry, more difficult to identify slap cases and to assist in dealing with all aspects of this issue. Yeah, so what it seems to, the, the, the wrong, such as it is, seems to be more of a moral wrong than something easily converted into a legal wrong, but it, it seems to be a sort of form of economic duress in which you're effectively saying that the power yeah. of the individual, by which we mean mainly financial power, but possibly political power is such, that they are so mighty they can suppress criticism of them. Now, uh, I, I get on board with that, but the reality is that that is a feature of our law across the board. It is only those with money who are able to exercise and realise their legal rights. That's been the case for a very long time, and certainly since the government slowly dismantled uh, legal aid in the corrosive and extensive way in which, and comprehensive way in which it has done so. But the the flip side of this, let's not forget, because it will get lost in this debate, the flip side of this is that newspapers do exactly the same thing with potential claimants. They are the, the, um, the powerful entity that prevents the individual from achieving justice, be that through privacy law or be that, that through defamation law, by being so powerful that they can effectively cripple an individual financially through their resistance to uh, litigation. They can, they can defame them uh, such that that individual loses their entire livelihood and then say, well, come on, sue us. You can't afford to. Well, what are we going to do about that situation? Well, the government's response to that is clear from its uh, so-called consultation on, human, on the Human Rights Act which is that it's hell-bent on dismantling and getting rid of the misuse of private information taught because its buddies in Fleet Street don't like it. And this government, it's not even hiding it anymore. This government is overtly hand-in-hand hand with the press to stay in power. So the situation that we're now in is a, a ridiculous one for a mature democratic society to be in where we have a government that is tyrannical in all but name, totalitarian in all but name, that is basically doing what it wants. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. Um, I'm not really sure how I can respond to that. I mean, one of the, one of the things that is proposed, Paul, in the uh, in, in the call for evidence, actually, it, it goes to the point you're making, and I think it is a concern. I've got, I mean, I've got my notes in front of me here. So it, it talks about the defence of truth call for evidence so um, again just to kind of reiterate how it works section two of the, tw of the defamation act 2013 
provides a defence to an action for defamation if the defendant can show that the statement complained of is substantially true. So what this means is, is that the defence applies a reverse burden of proof, which means that unless the defendant can prove that the defamatory statement is true, on the balance of probabilities, it is presumed to be false. Okay, And the reason that we have that reverse burden of proof, the defence of truth under defamation law, it has been said, is because powerful institutions such as the media, such as the press, shouldn't benefit from an assumption that their allegations, however serious, are true. Uh, and therefore, the imposition of the reverse burden reflects the awesome power of the press to damage individuals' reputations. And this isn't me saying that, by the way. This is Sir David Eady um, said this um, uh, in, um, in, in, uh, in a book that was written uh, back in 2003. But what the government is proposing in its call for evidence is whether in slaps cases, and this is where the issue comes in of defining actually a slaps case, we know what a slaps case is compared to a, a normal defamation claim, the burden of proof should fall instead on the claimant to prove that the statement is not true. So there are there are proposals there to reverse that reverse burden, if that makes sense. And I think that in itself could be dangerous because it would, I think, exacerbate the problem, Paul, that you're talking about with the media at the moment yeah absolutely the other the other question it raises in a defamation context of course and in fact across all litigation but the defamation context is why this is required uh in circumstances where the law is itself able to dismiss uh claims that that have no merit dismiss defenses that have no merit again there's an interesting conflict here uh, between what's going on in this consultation and what seems to be going on in the Human Rights Act uh, agenda. There, the criticism of Duchess of Sussex, for example, where um, the defence was struck out and summary judgment given uh, was exactly this type of thing. There was just no substance to the defence. Well, well, over there, in that context, that's somehow a problem judges meddling in things that they don't understand and not giving enough protection to free speech. But over here in this context, uh, suddenly it is a problem and, and courts need more protection to be able to to kick claimants out at an earlier stage. I just, I mean, the whole thing is so ridiculous. It doesn't bear analysis. I agree with you. I think, I think the issue is that, um, you know, with, with, well, the argument is that a lot of these claimants that bring slap lawsuits know that act, know that their claim is unmeritorious uh, they know they are probably not going to win if they were to go to you know if it was to go all the way but what they're doing is just the threat of the litigation or even just starting the litigation is enough to then curtail the speech from the you know from the defendant it's enough to, 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 to it's it's a it's being used as a reputation management tool that's it so they know they're not. They know they may not win, but they don't care about that. They just want the threat of the litigation, and even the cost. Because we, you know, we know as media lawyers the costs involved in bringing a defamation claim, the psychological toll it can take, the resources that are needed, and so just the threat of all of that is enough to stop it. So yeah, it's yeah. But, but I mean, this is. But this is a problem with law generally. It is. I yeah, mean, it doesn't stop right. there. This, yeah. this happens across the board in all forms yeah. of litigation. Yeah. 
if you've got a powerful individual on one side and a less powerful individual on the other side, it almost it all it also happens in an employment context, of course, all, all of the time. I mean, this is a failing of law generally that it can't deal with this kind of situation. It can't. It's not just limited to to these circumstances. And I, I think the difficulty with the whole sort of lap, uh, slaps. Uh, dialogue at the moment is that we we have in mind we've been encouraged to have in mind I think the 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 bad guy is the person bringing the litigation and the white knights as the people who are being affected here I'm just not convinced that that is the case um it's it's a sort of cozy ideal but where's the evidence and I would agree I think it's the it would be the case in some situations but in a lot of situations that's not not the case at all you're going to have an in you could have a powerful individual on one side and you could have a you know a powerful media organization or newspaper on the other side it's um I I completely agree well we could talk about this all day uh except we don't have time so we must move on um two cases that I want to uh close up by talking about um, first of all, we have a decision in uh, the case um, involving the journalist Chris Mullen. Now, Chris Mullen um, is a journalist whose work um, was instrumental in overturning the wrongful convictions of the Birmingham Six. These are the six men who were convicted uh, of uh, uh, wrongfully convicted of, um, of planting an IRA bomb in a pub in Birmingham in, the, in 1976. Um, Mullins' work with sources within the IRA enabled him to obtain evidence from the real culprits, um, but uh, he did so on condition of anonymity for those sources. Um, subsequently, in recent times, the police wanted access to his records, his notes, uh, and the names uh, of the people who had confessed to Mullen to uh, having actually been the, the culprits in this uh, horrific act. Um, and Mullen refused to uh, turn those things over, uh, citing the protection, the vital protection for journalists uh, and their sources ability to keep sources uh, uh, confidential in order to preserve the ability to conduct that kind of journalism in the first place, um, which is, uh, it, it was his argument, and the court agreed with him, uh, a matter of uh, considerable public interest. So um, the court has uh, sided with Mullen uh, rather than with the police, uh, and uh, Mullen does not have to disclose his sources. Uh, any views on this one, gents? It strikes me as the sort of situation in which that there are always going to be very strong emotions because there is an obvious desire to see real culprits brought to justice for uh, acts of violence of this nature. But given that we uh, have lived in uh, a climate where um, terrorists' acts um, those perpetrated by the IRA, uh, being the prime example, have been uh, perhaps not commonplace, but have been a regular feature of British life over the period of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Um, and given that, since we cannot 
foresee the future, we may well be subject again, we hope we won't, but we may be subject again to situations where serious organized violence um, takes place on our streets. We would want our journalists to be able to investigate miscarriages of justice, which are likely to occur. Um, And if that means conducting interviews with the actual culprits, but doing so on condition of anonymity, um, then I can entirely see the public interest in doing so. Notwithstanding, there is an obvious emotional commitment, where possible, um, to rounding these people up. But it's something the police are going to have to do themselves, not relying on work that has been done by journalists, because otherwise, journalists are not going to be able to get that kind of information. I think what's interesting about this case, as with all cases in this area, is is the question that we ask ourselves. If we're asking ourselves about um, the protection of sources as a a legal uh, embodiment of a a moral obligation, we know that journalists feel incredibly um, strongly uh, about their moral obligation to protect their sources. And for them, uh, sources are a tool of the trade. Um, and we know that from um, many journalists, um, giving up a source is uh, a sort of a moral death for them that they're not prepared to do, and they would rather go to jail um, than, than actually do it, take the consequences of contempt of court uh, and do that. So this case, again, uh, affirms uh, the importance of that principle uh, for the journalists. Um I'm interested in the in the sort of legal uh, question in terms of what law should be able to do to extract information from individuals who are willing to give that information. Um, on the one hand, I, I've said before on this podcast, journalists are not the police. And we shouldn't treat them as, a, as an alternative branch of the police. But here we see the flip side of that exact same statement. Journalists are not the police. And so um, if they do something that amounts to police work, um, that shouldn't be seen in these circumstances uh, as equivalent to a police officer doing it, as if that, is a, uh, as if that provides a justification for forcing them uh, to disclose this information uh, against their will. But having said that, um, would I still be saying the same thing if my family uh, were the victim? Uh, of uh, this outrage uh, would I still be saying the same thing if I was the person seeking justice after all these uh, years from the um, from the actual perpetrate, perpetrators of this horrific act um, I'm not sure I would um, I wonder whether part of the thinking by the courts uh, here was to do with the length of time that has expired um, because of course, one of the, the one of the reasons to issue the order disclosing information is that it's in the interest of justice to do so. Um, it may be that uh, a court has considered that the period of time between the act itself and and this new investigation is just too large. I don't know. Um, perhaps that argument could be made that the the, the length of time. I mean, the the Birmingham pub bombings happened in the mid seventies, so length of time is significant uh, here that might come into it the final uh, 
piece of news uh, to bring you today is a very small piece of news, but uh, it involves uh, the former Labour Party staffer, Laura Murray, who uh, listeners may recall um, was the unsuccessful defendant in a libel action brought by Rachel Riley against her that we talked about at some length on this podcast um, in, in recent weeks. Um, now, after the decision was handed down in the Riley case, um, an article was published in the Daily Telegraph by the former Labour Party MP, uh, Ian Austin, who has subsequently been uh, elevated to the House of Lords by Boris Johnson. Um, uh, Austin wrote an article in the Telegraph in which uh, he uh, labelled Laura Murray an anti-Jewish racist uh, and said that she was part of the, quote, vile anti-Semitism of Corbyn's labour, end quote. Um, Murray brought uh, uh, proceedings, um, indicated that proceedings would be brought um, uh, against both Austin and the Telegraph for libel, uh, and uh, the Telegraph uh, has admitted uh, the libel has issued an uh, apology and correction and has paid, uh, we are given to understand, £40,000 in damages uh, to Laura Murray for the entirely untrue allegation that she was an anti-Jewish racist. Murray has, as evidence pointed out in uh, the case uh, that Riley brought against her, uh, Murray has done extensive work um, to combat anti-Semitism in recent years. Um, 40,000 pounds in damages, uh, that's four times the amount of damages that uh, uh, Murray ended up having to pay uh, Rachel Riley, um, though we obviously don't know what the rest of the costs of that litigation uh, amounted to. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a saga that didn't need to rumble on, but did rumble on, and I think this is a far less controversial um, it's not even a decision. It's 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 a, a mission of liability on the part of the uh, defendants uh, and uh, uh, damages paid voluntarily. Um, which brings us to the end of the news. Thanks very much, Paul and Pete, for joining me today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. We'll uh, see you next time.